Live from the House of LeMay Makeup and Dressing Room. Here comes Amber. Stop what you're doing. Here comes Amber. She's just doing what she can. Here comes Amber. Cue the spotlight. Here comes Amber. With two drinks in her hand. The matriarch of fashion. You can't look away Ask her does she do it really nothing to it She's got that fan on the game If you have a party Or if you're feeling naughty Call up the house of the maid Hello, and welcome to the Amber Live interviews. This is Russell, producer and co-host of Amber Live. We want to remind you to subscribe to us both here and at youtube.com slash amberlive. You don't want to miss a moment of Amber LeMay, the Larry King of drag queens. There's so much more to the show than just the interviews that Amber does each week. We have hundreds of interviews, comedy sketches, songs, and more on YouTube that you can watch anytime. But... In the meantime, you can listen to the amazing interviews right here. Now enjoy this episode of Amber Live Interviews. Alyssa Goodman is a writer and photographer specializing in arts and culture. Her work has been published in Vogue, the New York Times Style Magazine, Vanity Fair, and others. Alyssa has also written about LGBTQ plus history and culture for Condé Nast, where she was the site's drag herstory and queer women's history columnist. She's been a freelance writer for 19 years and in love with drag for 28 years since the age of seven. Her first book, Glitter and Concrete, A Cultural History of Drag in New York City, was published in 2023. Here's a clip about it. There's a certain way the light hits a New York City sidewalk. A streak of glitter in the daytime a mystical shine in the darkness at night that seems to transcend time. Suddenly, when that glitter appears on the concrete, there's a jolt of memory. Every pair of heels that's twinkled across its gleaming surface, every tattered Oxford, every chunky combat boot, every life that's come before. We're taught to believe glitter, like drag, is artificial. But when light hits the concrete just the right way, and so clearly sends sparkles flying, there's nothing more real. Alyssa, come on in. Hi. Hi, Amber. How are you? I'm doing well. This is so good to talk to you. All right. You got infatuated with drag at a very, very early age. Sure. How did that happen? Um, I saw the film, too. I'm through Thanks for Everything, Julie Newmar. And I believe it was on pay-per-view at the time. Um, <laughs> and that was that was it. Um, to that point, um, my mother had raised me on 1950s movie musicals. And I loved the color and I loved the costumes. And so Tu Wong Fu sort of entering my orbit made perfect sense, except these were people who were here now. Um, and I just I just loved them. I thought they were beautiful. My interest in it came, I think, at first from a design perspective. Um, and 
then I just, I fell in love with their, their, uh, their warmth and their attitude and their outlook on life. And it's been a part of my life ever since. When did you start writing and uh, tell me about your education in journalism? Sure. Um, <laughs> I actually had a teacher in fourth grade named Susan Ludwig, who I'm still friends with, um, who pointed out the fact that I was a skilled writer in some way. And uh, in the same way that I first encountered drag, I just ran with it. You know, my, she told my mother to encourage the writing and she did. And uh, here I am. I'm, my education in journalism started when I was, oh gosh, um, I guess technically probably in high school, but I always had an interest in writing nonfiction uh, and reading it as well. Um, I was the editor-in-chief of the yearbook, and I wrote for the local newspaper, which I did for many years. Um, and when I got to college uh, at Carnegie Mellon, I studied professional writing and creative writing, um, and I started a music magazine there, and then I just kept going. I moved to New York. I, I had a job in an office, um, and I got laid off, and I needed to figure out what to do, and I turned it into, originally it was social media, which at the time didn't mean what it means now, um, and uh, I was writing, and I was taking pictures, and eventually I phased out the social media, and I've been only a writer and photographer for actually about 10 years. <laughs> and so you used your history of knowing and liking drag and turned that into a career. Pretty much, yeah. It's one of the many things that I write about. Um, I usually say that I write about arts and culture, and then drag is one of the things that I write about under that, but it's absolutely a specialty within it. Um, yes. <laughs> Tell me about your work as, as a columnist for those magazines. What were your topics and what were your, some, some of your favorite columns? So I was the drag history, history columnist at Condé Nast's Them, and I wrote about drag of all different stripes of, of across the gender spectrum. Um, and I think some of my favorite pieces were the ones where I got to learn something as well. Um, you know, you learn in the process of writing whatever you write, um, but it was fun to learn about people that I didn't know as much about. Um, I think one of my favorite pieces of was, uh, and I knew about Stormé de Lavier, um, but I was excited to learn about her background uh, in the Jewel Box Review and being photographed by Deanne Arbus um, and to encounter the photograph of her sitting on a park bench photographed by Deanne Arbus, which was really wonderful. Um, and I loved it so much that I actually, I think, made that the opening of the piece. Um, and I loved writing the Charles Bush piece too. Um, and Charles is now someone that I, I have known. Um, and I interviewed him for this book. Um, and I, we were just on a panel together at the Brooklyn Book Festival. Um, but at the time I knew him, I knew him from Die Mommy Die um, and not much else. Um, so it was fun to be able to sit down and read his work and to, to watch it and to you know make myself a student of his as well, absolutely. Charles Bush has been a guest here many times on Amber Live, and <laughs> Russell, Russell and I have been in his apartment. Oh, <laughs> yes. oh, I saw it on, was it, was it Architectural Digest? I mean, it's magical. Yeah. Well, yeah. Oh, it, it's even better in person. <laughs> <laughs> a girl can dream. <laughs> uh, um, so the history of drag, how far back do you go? 1865. And why, why then? I wanted the people that I wrote about to be as diverse as possible. And that was the time when 
um, there would have been people of as many ethnicities as possible on stages in the U.S. Uh, due to the end of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And where do you find information about drag from 1865 or 1865? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you have to do a lot of digging. And I think one of the things that's interesting about it, too, is to to learn the different ways that drag was referred to and the different ways that um, it was consumed, which also played parts in, in how I was able to look for things. So, for example, one of the people I found was a performer named Andrew Tribble, who... Um, who, he was a black performer who started uh, in minstrel shows, which unfortunately is how a lot of black artists had to get their start at the time. Um, and then once he moved north, um, he was he wore for a bit at in a show in Chicago. Uh, a he, he got into drag, and then the audience laughed so much that he kept doing it throughout the rest of his career. Um, and he didn't only do drag, um, but he was, uh, he was an influential drag artist in his time. Absolutely. Even though it was coming from more of like a comedic perspective, this like a, like a Mrs. Doubtfire or like a Milton Berle or something like that. Um, but it's still an important part of drag history and all these different forms that this, the, all these different spaces that the form can live in. Was drag underground or was it part of the general entertainment venues? Well, it depends on what year. Um, so, for example, it was it was like a beloved form of theater. Um, I would say uh, until probably like just after the start of the 20th century. And what happened in the change was that, you know, women, uh, mostly white women, received the white, the the uh, the right to vote. And it changed the relationship that ticket buyers, who were mostly men, had to seeing masculinity impersonated on stage. Um, so uh, in different points in history, it's it's gone up and down. Um, and I mean, just like, you know, I would say for probably like the, the 15 years that RuPaul's Drag Race has been on, like just in the last... Um, I don't know, what is it, like, year or two that we've really had this national backlash. Um, but that is unfortunately not unprecedented. Um, it's something that happened after the Great Depression as well, uh, after World War II, sort of in these times when men in power felt threatened, essentially, is what happened. Um, there would be a backlash to anything that was outside of gender norms. Um, and the sort of larger cultural experience was considered... Uh, was maybe more conservative. Um, so at those points, it would live underground. Um, and uh, I would say too, like the times when it was above ground, it had to be very clean and polished and uh, designed for straight audiences to consume. Um, and that was kind of the only way that it could survive for several decades um, above ground anyway, in, in any kind of format. Um, for example, there's, um, there's a line in the chorus, in a chorus line, this very famous musical, where they're talking about the jewel box review. And people may not know what that is now, but it, when a chorus line came out and Bud Coleman writes an article about this that's very astutely observed, uh, what he says is that, you know, people knew what the jewel box review was when a chorus line first came out. And this was a drag troupe that had been around for almost 40 years, you know, 
Um, so uh, I would say it depends on the point in culture when when you'd want to know if it was uh, above ground or underground, and sometimes both, often both. <laughs> Now, many drag queens have started off in, as, as a drag performer, but then transitioned to women. Mm -hmm. Was that the, the case back in the early days of drag as well? Um, I think, hmm. Well, I think the nature of how we talk about uh, transitioning is a lot different now than it used to be. Um, right. And the way that a person would and, and could refer to themselves has changed a lot as well. Um, so there, the language, for example, that a person might use at the time was lived as a woman, um, and, or lived as a man, um, whether or not there was medical transition involved of any kind. Um, and that happens throughout history. Absolutely. I mean, I had someone ask me, you know, can, are you, do you have a separate section in the book for people who are, who are transgender? And I said, no, absolutely not. You can't write this book without transgender people. Like, transgender people are woven through the fabric of this history, you know, and I, I would never want to, to write it any other way. <laughs> We've got many pictures from your book to show, but we're going to take a little break right now, but we'll be right back with Alyssa. Great. And we have tons of great t-shirts and bags and mugs, and we recommend that everybody check the store out because that helps us keep going too. We get a part of those proceeds to go to Amber Live and keep it going. And if you remember last week's guest, Paul Verberg, gave us a copy of his picture uh, from a gay rodeo poster that he did back in the 80s. And he's allowing us to print that on products. And those are available in the store, too. So go check all of that out after the show. Uh, but right now we're going to get back to part two of the interview. Welcome back, Alyssa. Your book is full of pictures, and we've got some to show our, our audience right now. So, Russell, please put some pictures up, and Alyssa, tell us what they are. Sure. So this is a photograph from an event called Night of a Thousand Stevies at Irving Plaza, and it's held by uh, the Jackie Factory, which are uh, people who used to put on an event here in New York, a party here in New York called Jackie 60, and it was a beloved downtown uh, drag, music, theatrical dancing comedy experience um and night of a thousand cvs is one of the events that they still do even though uh jackie 60 doesn't exist anymore chichi valenti and johnny Dinell. yes uh, that's from the new york burlesque festival <laughs> um one of the things i photograph in addition to drag is burlesque i'm a big burlesque fan and this is from one of the years at uh brooklyn bowl this is the performer Tyler Ashley, also known as the Dauphine of Bushwick. Um, this is at a, a brunch that, uh, that Tyler and Charlene do at Superfine. Um, and it's a drag brunch and it's almost a marathon. It's very long. Um, it's sometimes four or five hours and it just, it rains money on them. This is from a story I did about that drag brunch for Condé Nast them. This is the performer Leave Alone, um, who at the time was performing with a group called Switch and Play. Uh, I'm not sure if they are still performing or, uh, or, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure if they're still performing, but this is, this is them getting into drag. That is the performer Lucy Balls. <laughs> uh, Lucy Balls is, uh, is I think by day works in fashion and design um, and by night is a 
Brooklyn-based drag artist. And this is from a performance that she did at Untitled, one of Untitled Queen's shows at the Rosemont um, that I wrote about for Hyperallergic. This is a performer, Candy Sterling, uh, at Bushwig. And she's a phenomenal dancer. I'm not sure if she still performs. This picture's a few years old. Um, but she killed it and she's got these long legs and she just like kicks them into the sky and it's magical. <laughs> so Alyssa, um, excuse me, Alyssa, yes. um, there are many categories of drag queens. Do you cover them? I mean, there's the female illusionists, there's the, the glamour queens, mm -hmm. there's the clown queens. Mm -hmm. uh, what other categories can you think of? Um, there are, there's a look queen. Um, there's, uh, we talked about comedy queen. Um, we talked about, uh, there's, you know, the art girls, um, and there's, um, I mean, you know, and then there's also the same sorts of categories of, of drag king, right? And one of the things that I love about drag kings is that, um, there, you might have, uh, drag kings who, who are, who like lean into the sort of macho aesthetic, or you have people who, uh, really embrace, the sort of androgyny and gender ambiguity. Um, and the, the cake boys are a drag troupe here in New York and they have, um, they have a phrase that they use that has, that I've been hearing other people use and they say drag thing also for performers who are non-binary and perform non-binary identity. Oh, wow. So that's, there are, there are many different facets of, of all of those things and all of these different styles of drag across the gender spectrum. Now, do you have do you cover the drag king history as well in your book? Absolutely, yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't want to write a book about drag without acknowledging all the contributions that performers across the gender spectrum have made. Mm -hmm. Moby Dick was a guest of ours a few weeks ago and gave us a yeah. great history of of drag kings. Yes. <laughs> now, um, what about the ballroom scene in New York City in the seventies, eighties? Yeah. How tell me about that in according to drag. Um, so what's interesting is that the ballroom scene comes, uh, sort of spawns from drag, but uh, not everything now in ballroom is drag necessarily. Um, there could be dance, there could be um, runway modeling categories, there are, and not everyone is in drag, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Um, but it very much comes from, um, if you've seen the 1968 documentary, The Queen, um, it comes from this last moment almost in the film of electricity where crystal labeja um feels wronged by the 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 pageant's results and she storms off and she's got a lot of words to say about how the the pageant is rigged and you know i'm not ashamed to show my color like you know feeling that the the pageant is racist and um one of the things that i heard that I really love that I write about in the book too is at the 50th anniversary of the queen at town hall in 2018, um, the house of Lavasia came up on stage and they said, you know, um, we create in part the ballroom scene as it exists now, uh, we have it. So we don't have to wonder, uh, we don't have to, there's, what am I trying to say? <laughs> um, we don't have to think about why Harlow won. You know, so we're all winners here, essentially, you know, um, and uh, and, you know, if in the film, of course, the person who wins the, the pageant is Rachel Harlow, who is a who is a white queen. Um, 
and you know, this is the space where you didn't have to worry about, about that anymore. Um, if anyone is unaware of what the ballroom scene is, I highly recommend Paris is Burning, the documentary Paris is Burning, which is one of my all-time favorite uh, documentaries. How did the onset of AIDS change the drag scene? Well, one of the things it did is that it allowed people to see drag in a different way. Um, and to that point, um, I think one of the performers, Glamamore, I spoke to for the book, said, you know, at that point, doing drag was the wrongest thing you could possibly do, which is one of my favorite quotes from the book. And there wasn't, there's, you know, it wasn't something that people had a lot of respect for, whether it was, you know, it was seen as trashy. It was, you know, there was also probably some internalized homophobia involved in that. Um, but during the AIDS crisis, the drag queens and kings um, created space for people to laugh and for people to enjoy themselves. Um, and they were activists too, you know, they were, um, they were organizing benefits and they were doing charity performances. Right. They were going to, they were going to hospitals. You know, one of my favorite stories that Glenn Moore told me is of her and Connie Fleming at the time, Connie girl, um, going to hospitals to visit people. And, you know, the nurses were too scared to bring people's trays in. So they would bring them in, you know, and they would make people laugh in the elevator and they were, they weren't scared, you know? Um, and, and that I think is, is, it's an amazing contribution that they made and people began thankfully to acknowledge that. How has RuPaul changed the drag scene? Um, well, I think one of the most important uh, contributions that RuPaul's Drag Race has made is that it's created uh, an appetite for drag uh, outside of the drag bar. Um, and I think what that does is it allows, as Linda Simpson says, uh, it's a high tide raises all ships sort of situation. Um, and I mean, what, what I've said in the past too, is that, you know, I wouldn't be able to write my book without the, the space that RuPaul has created because, um, this is, you know, she has, she has drummed up so much of this interest that there's created a market for a book like mine, essentially, you know? Um, and I think something that also happens is that, you know, it makes drag accessible for a lot of people who may not have been able to see it otherwise, you know, or to see it before they're 21 and going to a bar or to see it, you know, in some cases for free, depending on where you see it, or, you know, if you're what kind of streaming service you use or, or, you know, on a cheaper basis anyway. Um, and I think it, it allows it to, to be in more homes, you know? Um, and then I also, uh, I also, I wish, I'm going to say I wish, um, I, one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I wanted people to know that there were stories of drag outside of the show as well. And there were styles of drag outside of the show as well. Um, and that there's a long history of drag that got us to RuPaul's Drag Race. Um, and one of the things I say in the book is, you know, uh, drag didn't need a television show to be the powerful art form that it is. Um, it's great that it has one, um, but there's there's so much more than what meets the surface. A Trixie Mattel quote, actually, that I say a lot or that I recite a lot is that um, saying you love drag, but you only watch drag race is like saying you love music, but you only watch American Idol. Um, it is, it is the pop music representation of drag. 
um, but there are so many other genres as well. Well, Alyssa Goodman, thank you so much for joining us. Fascinating stories on the history of drag. And uh, we have an address where people can find your book, and I'm sure many of our people will. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. Nice chatting with you, Amber. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Amber Live Interviews. Remember to subscribe to us so you don't miss a single minute of the fun. And remember, it is your support that keeps us going. You can make a donation through this podcast by using our Venmo at RJD Pro or by visiting us at AmberLive.tv and clicking on the Support Amber Live button. Thank you.